Father, we thank you that you are the Lord and you are the king of this church. Father, amazing love, how could it be that you died for us? So we stand here today in all of that and we stand here today because of that. So we pray as we come to your word that you would teach us, that you would edify us and that you would encourage us and that you would lead us, God, in Jesus' name, amen. I have to admit I'm guilty of saying that this verse is my favorite verse and this verse is my favorite verse and having all kinds of favorite verses to where when I say it, it loses all kinds of meaning about what my favorite verse is. But if I had to choose a verse in the Bible to be my one and all favorite and the one that encourages me the most and when I'm discouraged, the one that I look to, to bring life to me, um, it comes from John chapter 10, verse 10. But before we get there, we're going to cover the first um, nine verses before we get there. But verse 10 says this, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, or that you may have it abundantly. Um, So, to understand what's happening, though, in chapter 10, I need to catch you guys up a little bit with what's happening um, in chapter 9. In chapter 9, it's the Sabbath, and Jesus encounters a man that is born blind, And Jesus does what he always does, and he says, you know, restore sight unto the blind man. He sees a person in need, and he responds with action. And then he gives this man his sight back, right? Another part of life for this man that had never seen anything before, and God heals him. And so what do you think the response is? Do you think everyone is like, woohoo, rah, rah, yes! Look at that, Jesus restored sight back unto the blind man. Sadly, that was not the response of the Pharisees, and that was not how the Pharisees responded to the situation. In fact, they were rather upset because it was the Sabbath. And how could God work on the Sabbath? And how could Jesus do something on the Sabbath? And if he is really the Son of God and he is who he says he is, why would he violate the Sabbath to heal somebody? And so instead of celebrating, instead of rejoicing, instead of worshiping this God that can set, give sight to the blind man, they were upset and frustrated and bothered. And so Jesus launches into a teaching, which we pick up in John chapter 10, and he's talking and he's teaching the Pharisees. And so let's read together. Well, I'll read, you listen. I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who have ever come before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep does not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters, me, enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, and I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. And so, Jesus here is talking about shepherding, right? And what, do, what does a shepherd shepherd? Sheep. sheep, right? 
And in the story, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who were supposed to be the shepherd of the sheep. They were supposed to guide the flock, they were to lead the flock, and they were to lead them to God. And so the Pharisees were supposed to be shepherding the flock. And so Jesus very quickly starts to talk about the shepherd um, and refers to himself as the shepherd of the flock. Now, um, let's just draw some quick things to understand what we're talking about. Where Jesus is talking about being the gatekeeper of those that enter the flock, um, imagine in biblical times you had a lot of shepherds. Will was a shepherd, Laman was a shepherd, Rick was a shepherd, and we all shepherded our flocks. And then we, at nighttime, we would all bring them together to a pen or an enclosure, usually a stone wall that, would, grow, that was, had briars and thorns grown on top of it to keep out any intruder. And it usually was three-sided stone wall. But that left one part open. And so I would put my sheep in there, Will would put his flock in there, Rick his flock, and Layman his flock. And what they would do was they would hire someone, right, a gatekeeper, a doorkeeper, to stand watch. Because here's the thing. We might not find much value in sheep, but sheep were valuable. In comparison to the term, I don't know what a sheep's value is or anything like that, but I grew up on a dairy farm, and if any of our cows got sick, it was a big deal to us. Because one cow was estimated value somewhere between $18 and $2,400. All right? And they produced money for us. And so to lose one cow was to lose $2,400 just like that. And so the shepherds, sheep, were their business. They were its livelihood, right? Not only for the fleece and the things that they could make out of the wool from the sheep, but also for sacrifices, for food. And so, therefore, someone had to stand watch because not only would people come to try to steal and to rob and to take them to be a part of their own flock— they also had to watch out for natural prey, wolves and lions and things that might come and desire to eat the sheep. And so Jesus comes and says, you know, I am the shepherd, which makes us the <laughs> You know, I read somewhere, I was like, why couldn't we be the lion and Jesus be the lion tamer, right? Or why couldn't we be the stallion and, you know, Jesus be the jockey? But instead, we are sheep. Uh, for those of you, there's a classic video in the library, We Like Sheep, from one of Kim's Herds programs. Um, parents, go back and watch that and just enjoy your children um, eight to nine years ago in that. It's awesome. Where's Christiana Bowser? There's a perfect little one of her singing with sheep ears on. It's so precious. Um, but in reality, we are sheep. And at first, man, that just is not sound like what I want to be. I want to be a sheep. Because the truth is, is that sheep are not self-sufficient. Sheep, they need a shepherd to lead them, not only to green grass and pasture to eat, then they need the shepherd to lead them to a source of water. A shepherd carries one of these because sheep are also prone to wander or to leave the path, so that way the shepherd could pull them and bring them back into the fold. In fact, Sheep have nothing in them. They don't have any dangerous talons or claws or no sharp teeth to even fight off against anyone that would attack them. Hence, they needed a shepherd that would protect them, that would look after them. Obviously, we know that sheep grow wool, right? They need even 
a shepherd to fleece them and to shear them because if not, then their wool becomes matted and it becomes dangerous to their own health, right? And so they're completely dependent upon someone else for their existence and their livelihood and their survival, for their protection, for their well-being. They are not self-sufficient. And that should ring true of us is that's why we are like sheep, right? We are not self-sufficient. We were made to do life with God and be with him. And we were made to be dependent upon him. He is our shepherd. And when we look at it, we're a lot more like sheep than we would ever want to admit. Not by show of hands, but how many of us can personally answer that we've gone off the path? We've fallen into some things that we shouldn't have fallen into. We've listened to other voices. But I think one of the biggest dangers and one of the most tempting things is this, is that we, rather than wanting to be a sheep, want to be the shepherd. I want to lead the way. I want to go my way. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to be a sheep. I don't want to be a follower. I don't want to be a part of the flock. I want to stand out, and I want to make my own decisions, and I want to decide where I go. We really are people that thrive on self-sufficiency. I don't want to be dependent upon you. I don't want to need you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I can do it myself. I'm tough. That's weak to rely on others or depend on others. That's, that's silliness to be led by others. I, I lead myself. I'm responsible for myself. And we like to stand on the grounds of self-sufficiency where we think that we can make it on our own and we don't need anybody and I am going to do it on my own and I'm going to make my own decisions. But the scary thing is, is that when we do not heed to the shepherd and then when we take the staff and the rod in our own hands, is where does that usually end up leading us? When we don't see the need for God's provision or God's hand or God's guidance or him leading us in life, then we're usually set to set that course ourselves. And how often do we get consumed and let off the path in pursuit of things only to end up heartbroken, stressed, confused, and frustrated? We get consumed with our jobs, our families, the things going on at work, sports, school, vacation, pleasure, and we are stretched 90 different ways and we're exhausted and burnt out and frustrated. We go to work and we feel like we're in a monotonous, dead-end struggle where we work to pay our bills and survive, but the survival doesn't even feel like all that work and effort is even worth it. We toil and we toil and we toil to wake up and toil and toil some more. And it feels like that life that Jesus has come to fill us with and to give us in abundance is being choked out and sucked right from us that we've lost the motivation, the energy, and we simply don't know which way to turn. And I would like to ponder and I would like to think that if it has a lot to do with us being the shepherd and us trying to provide and us trying to meet our own needs and trying to do it all on our own without the shepherd. We're like sheep that have fallen prey to society and culture and the demands that we must do this, we must do that. This is the life that you must have. This is what life is really about. You have to be like this. You have to look like this. You have to... And we've fallen prey to everyone else's voice but his. And we're kind of like Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes. It's like everything is like chasing after the wind. 
It's always one step ahead of us and we can never catch it and we're just exhausted and we're on the same cycle just trying to grasp and catch the wind. How many of us where our leading motivation or our leading thoughts are out of anxiety, fear, and worry and they dictate our behavior and what we do and how we live and we're just in a sense of apathy and frustration and we wonder if we're even achieving anything or doing anything. Ever been there? where your life is just kind of on autopilot and then you, five months later it hits you and you're like, where has five months even gone? Where's the last five years even gone? And we seem stuck. Why? It's because we're sheep and we've wandered and we've tried to live life absent and devoid of being led by the shepherd. And so Jesus comes and he says, you know what? I have come to be the true shepherd, the good shepherd, the one that has come the right way. And so I want to look at some things that the shepherd does. Now, if you were to leave church today and you were to drive through the Wawasset neighborhood and you saw someone standing with a baseball bat and they were swinging out a window and just cracks it right open, your natural thought wouldn't be, huh, they must need new windows. It must be their house. I'm sure that's just how they're going about replacing them, right? That wouldn't be your thought. Your natural thought would be, hey, that is not their house, and they're entering in a way that is illegal and wrong, and since they don't have the right access to the house, they're going some other way, right? Because we know that if you want to enter your house, you usually take your set of keys, and that set of keys matches the door to your house, and then when you turn the key, it unlocks, and you gain access, In the beginning of John chapter 10, that's what he's saying. He's like, I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. Right? The true shepherd doesn't have to come in the dead of night or doesn't have to come to try to sneak around the gatekeeper. Why? Because the gatekeeper knows the true shepherd. And so Jesus is saying, I have come the right way. I haven't come to rob or to steal or to take, but I am coming with my keys in hand to take what is mine. And so for the first point is this. It goes on to say that the man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice and he calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. And Jesus is drawing a quick distinction here between the Pharisees of old who used to, who only valued the people for their money and fleecing them and what they could give and their power and their position. And Jesus is saying over here, I'm the true shepherd. And you know what? I know my sheep by name. You ever been somewhere and you met someone only one time and, you know, then you see them six months, a year later, and they know your name and you're like, wow, you know, how'd they remember my name? Or what about the reverse, where you've met someone five or six times and you've clearly had an exchange of names and you know them and they clearly have no idea who you are. (laughs) And it's like, man, how insignificant or how lonely am I? Have you ever been in a large conference or in a large crowd and you don't know anyone at all and no one knows your name and no one knows you from Adam and you think, man, how lonely. I don't know anyone, I have no connection. It's one of the saddest things and the scariest feelings is to feel that, you know, that you could just slip right on out and no one would even know whether you had been here or not been here and that you were just gone. 
was speaking with an individual that doesn't go to this church about two weeks ago and they were wondering that same thought. Would anyone even notice if I was gone? If I just wasn't here and I wasn't to be, would anyone even care that I wasn't? Maybe you felt that way. Maybe you felt that way in your job where you're just another cog in the wheel. You're good for your job and you're good for your productivity and as long as you produce and make money, you're good and you don't stand out. But other than that, your boss and the people around you don't know anything else more than that. How'd you do on your job? Did you, you know, did you do what needed to be done? They don't care about your family. They don't care about what's going on, your personal life. They just care that as long as you're just a piece in their machine, a piece in their puzzle, and you do that, then you're good. Maybe you felt like that in your family where you've served and you've given of yourself and you continue to pour yourself out and no one just values or appreciates or even recognizes. And you feel all alone and you feel like if you were just to go, no one would even notice. No one would even care. But Jesus comes and says, you know what? I call my sheep and I know my sheep by name. And that speaks of relationship. The shepherds of old, they used to say they had nicknames for their sheep, right? That they were on such a level and had such a relationship with their sheep that they even had certain nicknames that they would give their sheep and that they knew the sheep by name. And so Jesus is saying, I have come to shepherd you and I have come to lead you and I have come to gather a flock for myself and it's to draw into relationship with him. Right, that's, what, that's the meaning of name. Right, he knows your name. And so he knows Matt and he knows Miguel and he knows Mike. And he's calling you into relationship and he's saying, I know you by name. And I'm calling you into the family of God. I'm calling you into the flock and to be a part of it. And it's not about just what you can do and your rules and your rituals and all this. It's about a relationship to where you know my name and you know my voice. Isaiah 43, 7 says this. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and made. He says not only has he called you by your name, but he has formed you and made you. In Matthew, it tells us that, that when two sparrows, you know, fall to the ground, he knows how much more does he care about you. It says he, the hairs on your head are numbered. And so Jesus isn't a shepherd that's far off, that's distant, that has no idea what's going on with the members of his flock or has no idea about the problems with the sheep, but that he is intimately involved in your life. He knows your fears. He knows your anxieties. He knows your sins. He knows your pains. He knows the things that you desire to do. He knows your hopes. He knows your ambitions. And he's saying, I know you. And I want you to be a part of my flock. And I'm calling you out and I'm calling you to join me. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's telling the Pharisees, he said, I'm coming the right way. And I'm coming to gather myself a flock and to call people by my name. Two chapters later in John chapter 12, it says that when he is raised up, Jesus says, I will draw all men unto myself. He's gathering a flock. He wants you to be a part of the family of God. And he's given us the mandate to share the gospel so that others may join the flock. Go therefore into all the world and make disciples. What are we doing? We're gathering a flock. We're making the kingdom of God come here on earth. And he's calling you to be a part of it into a relationship with him. It's personal. 
And so you might be sitting here and no one else might know your fears and no one else may value you and no one else may appreciate you and you may feel worthless. But Jesus is here today saying, I know your name and I've invited you to be my son and my daughter and to be a part of my kingdom and you have a place here today. The Pharisees really... um, It's astonishing in chapter 6, it says this, Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. And here's the thing, the Pharisees, they should have known. Uh, If we take just a look at a few verses, uh, first slide there, Alex, some prophecies in the Old Testament, says, as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered, on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in the, all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel will, will be their, gathering, or their grazing ground. There they will lie down in good grazing lands and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. And just one more. The Old Testament is filled with all kinds of prophecies where Jesus, where they talk about the coming Messiah being a shepherd. But here's just another one from Jeremiah 31.10. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather and watch over his flock like a shepherd. And so Jesus is saying that shepherd, that Messiah, the Savior, the one that was prophesied about, the one that you heard about, the one that you have studied, and the one that the Pharisees would have read about, Jesus is saying, I am him. I am that shepherd. I am the one that has come to gather a flock and to gather a nation and to lead them to good pasture. He is the one that is prophesied about. He goes on to tell them in verse 7, Therefore I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. Wait, I thought you were the shepherd. What do you mean you're the gate? I love that image. Jesus is saying, I am the protector and the defender and I stand at the gate and I am the shepherd. I am both. Not only do I lead and comfort, but I also protect my flock. And so he goes on to say that all who have ever come before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate and whoever enters through me will be saved. He's saying, you want to be a part of the family of God? You want to be a part of the flock of God? This comes through me. You must enter by me. What does he say later in John chapter 14 and verse 6? I am the way, right? I am the way, the truth, and the I love that. No one comes to the Father but through him. You ever talk to someone that doesn't know their path or doesn't know their destiny or doesn't know which way they should be going in life and they have no idea what life is about and they're asking that question, you know, what do I do with my life? Why am I here? Simple. Jesus said, I am the way. You were made to have a relationship with God and to know him. It says, for my name's sake, who I've made for my glory. That's your destiny. And Jesus saying, I am the way to that. And I am the truth and the life. Another important aspect, though, to distinguish is this, is that the sheep knew his voice, and they knew the shepherd's voice. And what does it say about everyone else's voice? It says they didn't even recognize them. It's that they heard it, and then it said they ran because it was like a stranger to them. And that's kind of the hallmark of Christian discipleship and knowing Jesus right there. 
is that can I listen to his voice? Can I heed his voice? And every other voice, I can just tune out and it sounds like strangers to me. And that should be the desire of all of us here today. Lord, I only want to know the master's voice and I only know what you call me to and what you desire to. And I want every other voice to drown out because I hear yours and yours alone. Because make no doubt about it, there's a lot of other voices to be heard. Spend your money here. Get in this relationship. Do this, do that. Look at this, be this. You got to be careful that there's a lot of other voices that fight for your attention, your devotion, your love, your focus, your energy, your time, and there's a lot of things that would try to lead you off the path. And so the question is, what voice are you listening to? I would love to say that in my life, you know, the only voice I listen to is Jesus, and that's the only one that I follow. <laughs> be a lie. <laughs> Because there's a lot of other voices saying, Ryan, do this. Ryan, you should do that. You know? What happened to Adam and Eve in the garden? It was another voice. Did God really say? Is that what God really intended for you to do? Right? And the moment that Adam and Eve heeded and listened and gave thought to another voice, sin entered their life. What about Judas? Judas had spent all of his, or his last three years with the good shepherd, hearing his teachings, watching the miracles, and seeing everything. But then here come the 30 shekels of silver. You know what? If you just, if you hand over Jesus to us, right? And he heeded the pressure of society and culture and his peers, and he listened to the wrong voice. I think the most dangerous voice, though, was um, sometimes our own flesh. Romans 7, Paul says it this way. He says, the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing. And the things that I do want to do, I don't do. And so we have this war inside of us where it's our spirit and our flesh. And the question comes down to, which one am I going to listen to? Which one am I going to heed to? Because later in chapter 8, he says, those that are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. And so the question becomes for us, which voice are we heeding to? And is it our desire that I want to know the master's voice and to where every other voice that calls me and tries to lead me astray, I don't even recognize it. Because it says that's what the sheep do. They hear the voice, and it says that they hear the stranger's voice, and they flee, and they run because they know it's not their master. And isn't that God's illustration to us for sin in all other aspects? Flee from sexual immorality. Resist the devil, and he will flee. And so that's the hallmark after entering the family of God and after joining and becoming a part in his son and daughter. It's this. It's learning to know his voice and to follow his voice and drown out all the rest. Now, verse 9. I am the gate, and whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come, out, he will come in and go out and find pasture. What does pasture represent? What do you do in a pasture? You graze, right? I love that. Jesus is saying, I will lead my people, and I won't lead them into despair. I won't lead them into turmoil. I won't lead them into danger. He says, I will lead them to pasture, where they can be fed, where they can be nourished, where they can get the supply of what they need, right? He says it in the prayer, give us today our daily bread. He is our daily bread, and he's saying, if you allow me to shepherd you, you allow me to lead you, I will lead you to pasture where I can find nourishment where I can find my supply and then what else do you do in pasture you lie down and you find rest 
is that Jesus will lead you to rest. It's not saying that you have to scratch and claw and fight and search. He's saying if you follow the shepherd and you stay on his path, he will lead you there. What's it say in Psalm 23? That even though you walk through the valley of shadow of death, right, he's still gonna lead you. His rod and his staff will comfort you and that he leads you beside the still waters. Sometimes we get it twisted and we um, think to ourselves, my parents used to do this thing that they thought was fun on a Sunday afternoon. And as kids, we did not, me and my brother did not think it so fun. And they just called it, let's go for a Sunday drive. What that really meant was just drive around good old Juniata County and take in the sights. Now to 10 and a 12-year-old boys, it wasn't like, ooh, nature, yay, that's exciting, right? <laughs> that is far down the list of what I wanted to do. But for some reason, I think we think that that's what it's like to follow Jesus, you know? That it's just boring, just, you know, you're gonna make it, you're gonna get through, it'll be fun, we're gonna follow Jesus, and, you know, it'll be good, right? It's kind of like going to Williamsburg, Virginia, and it's like, well, there's Bush Gardens, and there's Water Country, USA, and it's like, no, not Colonial Williamsburg, right? <laughs> But that's kind of what we think like following Jesus is. We think, you know, if we deny it, there's bush gardens and there's water country USA and there's all the fun, the exciting stuff and all that. And I got to put that aside and I just got to go to Colonial Williamsburg and call that the greatest thing ever. No. What's he saying in verse 10? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life. The word there is Zoe. If you ever know someone named Zoe, that's what their mean means. It's life. And it's vigorous, vibrant, and just passionate life. And not only that you may have it, but that you may have it in abundance. We often get it confused because the thief that he's talking about here is, um, Jesus really isn't talking about the devil in this story, although the devil does the same thing. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But the thief that he's talking about here is the Pharisees. They were supposed to be the people to lead people to God. But they drowned people out in their vain religion, their traditions, and their laws, and their rules, and it just became this dead-end faith that had no life flowing in it. And so Jesus is contradicting that and saying, I have come, not just so that you can be part of the big church machine and that you can fill your role and you can do your spot and you can get the pat on the back and you can just be good, but I have come to fill you so that you can have life. So on my darkest days, when things start to drown out and it just seems like, you know, the life is being choked and suffocated out of me and I just all the pressures and the burdens and the responsibilities and the weight and it just feels like man why am I doing this I go back to this verse no no this isn't the life Jesus has for me he comes to give me life an abundant life and not only does it just doesn't mean eternal life that I just yay I get it then it means right here and right now not only do you get the promise of eternal life in heaven but he's come to fill you and give you life right now you ever met that Christian that it's like you're not really sure if they do have that life because <laughs> everything is just a drag and a burden and this. And you talk to them and it's like, wait a second. <laughs> it's like, do you know Jesus? Do you know the one that has come to give you life? Jesus wasn't ignoring that there would be difficulties and challenges and he wasn't overlooking it and saying that that wasn't going to be a reality. We know that he tells us, in this life you're going to face trouble, but I have overcome them. And that's where we find our life. 
So it's not just some ho-hum, average, so-so, you can do it, you're gonna make it. It's a promise that you can have life today. That you don't have to keep chasing the wind, you don't have to keep, be stuck in this monotonous rut that you just can't escape. That God's desire is to know you and to call you by name and then to fill you with life. Similar to the way that he breathed life into Adam and Eve. He wants to fill you with that life. That's what you were made to be doing. So I'm going to ask that um, the worship team and those that are serving communion come front. And as we celebrate communion, as we'll talk about next week in part two of the Good Shepherd, is this. In verse 11 he says, the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so that's what communion is. It's a celebration of the life that was given for our life. Because in Ephesians 2, it says we were what in our trespasses? Were we alive in our trespasses? We were dead in our trespasses and sin. For the wages of sin is... But the gift of God is eternal life. And so we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, which we're going to celebrate here in communion, has come to bring life. And so as you partake of it today, remember that and be filled with life and the hope that is in Christ.